Well, good morning. Today we're continuing this series about living as citizens of heaven. And as I was thinking about this series, I remembered when I was in college, I did uh, a summer tour in Europe. I took some classes um, in Europe that were, that were offered through our school. And so I was there for three or four months. And after not very long, I started to get homesick in Europe. And I've met a lot of people who just love Europe and think that they could live there and that they've just got the best food there and the culture there. And, and maybe that's true. I was just ready to come back to America. Um, and I am happy here. I'm a happy citizen here. Um, and so I was experiencing that. And maybe you've felt that before if you've ever traveled. Uh, when you're away from your homeland, you start to miss your homeland. Have you ever experienced that? And not only that, but this thing happened to me where um, all of a sudden I like cared about things from home that ordinarily I would not care about, like soccer games. Um, I'm not a big soccer guy, but the United States was playing some kind of exhibition match, I don't know. And all of a sudden, while I'm in Europe, I'm like, I got to watch this. And I go to this little pub, you know how Europe has pubs everywhere, um, and the national anthem comes on. Like tears are coming to my eyes. <laughs> and there's like one other group of Americans and like they're now my best friends, you know? <laughs> um, maybe you've experienced that before. Um, this will happen to me sometimes when I'm driving here and I see somebody with a Power T emblem on their car. Uh, a Power T is the sign of the University of Tennessee sporting teams, and I will navigate traffic, like speeding up to them. I've got a Tennessee thing that I keep in my car, and I will like hold it up to them, and I'm like, hey, me and you. <laughs> I never do that when I'm in Tennessee. <laughs> but there's something about being away from your homeland that makes you miss it and makes you identify with these people in a new way. And the same thing should be true for Christians. And that's the point of Philippians, is that there should be this, this thing in you that, that just misses home and causes you to identify then and band together then with other people who are from your homeland too. The same thing should happen for Christians. This weekend, I was in uh, Denver. Courtney and I went to Denver just for couple nights to visit some friends from college. And um, we were in this restaurant and it was just Courtney and I, we were waiting to meet our friends. And in this restaurant, I could overhear at the table uh, beside us, this conversation that was taking place. And just the way that they were talking, it made me think that these people are like real Christians. Okay. They're not just like occasional Christians. They're like really, they, they're people who understand the gospel. And Courtney went to the bathroom and then this group of uh, this table was leaving and one of the guys got up and started walking towards uh, our direction and he and I made eye contact and he smiled at me and I stopped him and I said, sir, um, are you a pastor? Just because of some of the things he was talking about, starting these new groups and wanting to see uh, the gospel expand. He was using language like that. And I was like, are you, are you a pastor? And he said, no but this is my restaurant. I was like, no way. You're, he's like, yeah, this is my restaurant. And um, that was just 
a group of guys from our church, um, we just meet here to talk about how we can see the gospel advance in our city. And I'm like, man, that is such a picture of this text that I'm preaching on this Sunday. And it's amazing that just me hearing some of the ways he was talking, it was like I knew that this is a guy who, who belongs to heaven. This is a guy who gets it. This is a guy who's, who's engaged in the mission. Just like if I was in Europe and I heard somebody speaking an accent from the South, I'd be like, hey, who are you? You're speaking English, but you sound like me. In the same way, there's, there's this shared identity as Christians. And that's the point that Paul is going to make in today's text, and then he's going to continue this argument throughout the rest of the letter. Here's what he says. This is the theme verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Just one thing. In other words, here's, hey, here's the bottom line, all right? Only this. If you forget everything else, here's the deal. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, some of you use a different translation, and you're confused right now. Because you're looking at your Bible and you're like, it doesn't say that. And, and what? It doesn't say anything about citizens in this verse. It says, live your life worthy or conduct yourselves worthy. There's a little verb that Paul is using here that's pretty interesting. And it's a verb that literally means to live as a person of the city, to live as a citizen of the city. It's to be a good citizen is essentially what he's saying. Hey, be a good citizen, Christians. And he's not talking about being an earthly citizen. We learn this from chapter three, uh, verse 20. And so this translation just takes that idea and translates it pretty literally. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy. We talked about this the first week of the series, but... Paul is being intentional to use this little verb, hey, be a citizen of heaven, live like a citizen of heaven. He's being intentional to say that to the Philippians. Do you remember why? Because Philippi is a Roman colony. The people who live in Philippi are predominantly Roman citizens, and their task is to live as citizens of Rome among the Greeks. Their task is to uphold and maintain Roman values, Roman customs, Roman ideals in Macedonia. Paul was a Roman citizen himself. He understood the task that they had, and he speaks into that cultural moment, and he says, hey, you have a citizenship that matters more than your Roman citizenship. You have a purpose in Philippi that matters more than representing Rome or representing Caesar. You have a purpose in Philippi to represent heaven. The city of Philippi may be a Roman colony, but the church in Philippi is a heavenly colony. You are a colony of heaven. 
There is a king in this church in Philippi. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus. There was an election. God was the only one who got a vote and God appointed Jesus to be Lord. He says that in the text we're gonna look at next week. Jesus is Lord. You are a citizen of heaven, he's telling them. And so live like that. Live your life worthy of the gospel. What does that little phrase mean? Well, when he says gospel, he's talking about the, the basic hold it all together message of Christianity. The gospel, anytime you see the word gospel in one of the New Testament letters, it's referring to what God has done to save the world through his son, Jesus. That's all it's talking about. What God has done to save the world through his son, Jesus. What has he done to save the world? He has sent his son, Jesus, to become a human. He talks about that in the text next week. He sent his son, Jesus, to become a human. Jesus grew up and lived and did everything that humans are supposed to do. And then he goes to a cross and dies in the place of sinners so that sinners like the Philippians, sinners like Paul, sinners like me, and sinners like you can be forgiven. He dies on the cross and then he is raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. And because of what Jesus has done, we can be saved. Because of what Jesus has done, we can belong to a greater kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. And that's why in Colossians chapter one, Paul says this, he, that's God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Why are you a citizen of heaven? Because God has done something for you. When you believe in Jesus, when you trust in what he has done in his life and his death and his resurrection, you are transferred. You take up residency in a new place. You become a citizen of a new kingdom. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Verse 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. What does it mean to live worthy of that? Does this mean that in order for you to really get to be a citizen of heaven, to really get to go to that new kingdom, that you've got to live up to the gospel, you've got to earn the gospel to live worthy means that you need to somehow earn something? No, the, the word worthy here, to live worthy of the gospel, it means that your life needs to have the same value as the gospel. It's the idea of consistency. Your behavior should be consistent with your message. To be cliche, your walk should match your talk. To say, for Paul to say, hey, you need to be a citizen who lives worthy of the gospel. He's saying, hey, be who you really are. Don't settle for less, but, but be who you are. You're a citizen of heaven. 
Because Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the dead so that you can belong to heaven, then live like you belong to heaven, he's saying. Think like someone who belongs to heaven. Speak like someone who belongs to heaven. Act like someone who belongs to heaven. Let me ask you something. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to believe the gospel, is your life consistent with the gospel? Is how you spend money consistent with the gospel? Is how you talk to your wife consistent with the gospel? Is how you talk about Governor Inslee or President Biden consistent with the gospel? Is your time management consistent with the gospel? Are your thoughts and creativity, your imagination, consistent with the gospel? Is what you do when you're angry or hurt consistent with the gospel? Is your work ethic consistent with the gospel? Pastor Crawford Loritz says that um, when, uh, this is a sigh, I shouldn't have brought this up, but, um, <laughs> but he says that uh, when, he, when he sees a Christian who has like, you know, Christian stuff at their cubicle, the first thing that he wants to know is, are you a good employee? Because if you're not, take all that stuff down, all right? If you're, you know, showing up late and you, you know, halfway do everything and nobody can trust you to do what you say you're gonna do or do your best work, like take the Christian stuff down, all right? You're giving the rest of us a bad name. Is your work ethic consistent with the gospel? Is your sexual ethic consistent with the gospel? Is your approach to COVID-19 consistent with the gospel? Are your politics consistent with the gospel? The citizenship metaphor was fitting for Philippi, but it is also fitting for people who live in the United States of America. We live in an awesome country. We have rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness here. We've never been perfect at pursuing those or creating opportunity for all to pursue those. We have always fallen short of that ideal, but we have ideals here of liberty and justice for all. And that is not true everywhere in the world. These ideals we understand to not be established by the state, but endowed by our creator here. We live in an awesome country, but we must never forget that our first identity is to be citizens of heaven, not of the United States. Let me ask you something. When you are reading the Bible, thinking about the way of Jesus, and you bump into a tension between the way of Jesus and the way of America, you ever been reading something and you're like, that doesn't seem like, nobody in America seems to do that. When you bump into a tension, who do you pledge your allegiance to?
and the song Citizens by John Guerra, who's one of my favorite artists. He went to the same Bible college as me. He asks, how can we call ourselves Christians? Saying that love is a tension between the call of the cross and between the old party line. The church is a colony of heaven. Our job is to live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you live like that, when you do your best as an individual and as a church to pledge your allegiance to a heavenly kingdom, eventually there will be opposition. And that's what happened to the Philippians. The context for this letter is that these are people who came to faith. Some of them were wealthy, influential people, but now that they're Christians, there's conflict outside the church. That conflict could be coming from other Jews. And in chapter three, we'll talk about that when we get there. There are some Jews who are essentially saying that, hey, you Christians are undermining the law of Moses and you deserve to pay for it. And there's also some opposition that they're experiencing from Romans. They're saying, hey, you Christians are undermining the way of Caesar and the way of Rome and you need to pay for it. And that external opposition, that external conflict is starting to create internal conflict. Because of all of the stress of what's going on outside the church, when they come together, they're also starting to fight about some stuff. They're stressed. They're intimidated. And it's causing them to try and fight for their own interests inside the church. And so Paul is addressing that. The situation reminds me of a, a football team when they're, they've lost a few games and the coach starts to be on the hot seat. And then the discussion becomes, is the coach gonna lose the locker room? Is the coach gonna lose the locker room? You ever heard that? I'm from Tennessee, we're always, you know, that's always the, the, the case for us. But because of all of the external noise, now we're fighting in here. We don't trust one another in here. That's the situation that's starting to happen in Philippi. And so Paul is telling them to live worthy of the gospel, to live as citizens of heaven. And how does that look in the face of opposition? That's the question he's about to answer. He says, here's what you gotta do. I want you to live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel. Then, this is the rest of verse 27, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, whether I'm able to come to you or not, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, 
contending together for the faith of the gospel. The main verb throughout the rest of these verses is right there. In verse 27, standing firm. Everything else in the sentence relates to that. He says, here's what you've got to do as you start to face opposition. You're citizens of heaven. You're, you know, trying to live for this, you know, kingdom. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to stand firm. The word stand firm is actually a military word. It refers to this conviction, this courage to remain when you want to run. It's what a soldier would do when the battle intensifies and he's supposed to hold this line and everything in him wants to run, wants to say, you know what? Wars are fought for rich people anyway. I'm going back home. But instead, he stays. He remains when he wants to run. That's what it means to stand firm. Now, he's saying, there's going to be a temptation as you're trying to think about heaven and live for the gospel, there's gonna be the temptation when that gets hard to just quit, to just stop doing that, to settle down, to just be a a good Christian person maybe, but not be like, all in living for heaven, that's, that's weird, all right? People will oppose that. But if you're just, if being a Christian to you just means that you're a good person like everybody, then that'll be fine. There's a, tem- there's a temptation when you start to face opposition to compromise things. And he says, remain when you wanna run. Stand firm when you want to give up things. Don't compromise, instead have conviction. And now he describes what that standing firm actually entails. He modifies it with three things. He says, standing firm means living in unity with other Christians. Standing firm in the face of opposition as a citizen of heaven means living in unity with other Christians. Notice he says, I wanna hear about you that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord. The word accord there is just the word life or soul, psyche. He's saying, you guys as citizens of heaven, as a church, need to live like, even though you're a bunch of different people, you're like one person though. You've got one will, one mind, One life, one thing. He's talking about unity. Look at chapter two, verse two. He continues this thought. He says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He wants them, even though you're different, to be the same in your perspective. How we understand the world needs to be influenced by the gospel, the same. We need to be the same, even though we're different, in our love. How we see each other and how we treat each other needs to be shaped by the gospel. And we need to be, even though we're different, we need to be the same in our purpose. 
what we are set on accomplishing in this world. It's like the guy in Denver. He owns a business. He wants to make money at his restaurant, sure. But he's, he's got a bigger goal than that. He wants to see something more than a great restaurant. And so despite the differences Christians may have, we are to be united in the gospel. Stand firm together in one spirit, in one life, in one accord. Think the same. Love the same. Be intent on one purpose. Be united in spirit. And so... To be united together, I think, means that we need to be united in our faith. This doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. We still have freedom of conscience. But we need to be united on the essentials as Christians. Um, To help us think about this, theologians have made up what they call theological triage. That is, they think through different uh, doctrines, different things that we believe in First order issues, second order issues, and third order issues. A first order issue is an issue that we have to agree on. If you compromise on a first order issue, you're not a Christian anymore. The gospel is forfeited. A second order issue are things that you need to have agreement on in order to partner together in ministry. And a third order issue are things that you could even be part of the same ministry and have different opinions about. The reason this is helpful is because what Paul is not advocating for here is that Christians always think the same way about every single thing. Instead, the idea is that we think the same way about essential things. And we're willing to overcome other differences for the sake of unity around the things we agree on. So first order issues are things like the Apostles' Creed. There is one God. He eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't compromise on that. First order issues are things like there is salvation in no one else except Jesus. We can be saved only because of what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Someday Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Everyone will spend forever somewhere. Those are first order issues that as soon as one of them disappears, the gospel is compromised. You you stop being a Christian at that point. Those are first order issues that we have to have unity around. Second order issues are things like baptism and church governance. It's going to be hard to be in a church if some people believe we need to baptize infants and other people believe we only need to baptize believers. And so for the sake of greater unity, it's actually more helpful for us just to disagree on that, still be united in the first order thing, but but pursue what the Holy Spirit has led us to pursue according to our conscience. And then third order issues are things that you can have disagreement with even in your own church that would be, in my opinion, things like the end times or Calvinism and Arminianism. These are things that Christians can still pursue ministry together and disagree on. 
Now, we can debate where something falls, and a disagreement could cause you to have more fruitful ministry in another church than one church, but the goal, in spite of all of that, is still to be united, one. And we should be united in mission. I was listening to a podcast this week and the guy wrote a book and in the, question, in the book he asks the question, what emotionally connects you to your church? What emotionally connects you to your church? And he says, for most people, there are three things. The place itself, the personality of the staff or the preacher or the worship leader, and a program. You love the children's ministry, or you love the women's Bible study or something like that. That's, that's the reason that most people connect emotionally to their church and stick to their church. It's one of those things. And he talks about how these are not bad things, but they shouldn't be the thing we are most emotionally connected to in a church that is on mission for the gospel. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. So standing firm means living in unity with other Christians. That doesn't mean that we'll always agree about every single thing, but it does mean that we'll have unity around matters of most importance. There's freedom to debate what those things are, but we've gotta be careful not to get stuck on things that are not primary. Standing firm also means contending together for the faith of the gospel. Look at verse 27. This little word contending together is an athletic term. It's a rare word in the New Testament. It's only used here and in chapter four, verse three. It's a picture of athletes working side by side, playing the same game as if they're one person with one mind for one goal. And here it says that goal is the faith of the gospel. They are contending, they are striving, they are playing this game together for the faith of the gospel. And isn't it interesting that the word faith has a the in front of it? Like we don't typically say that. We just would say, I have faith, not I have the faith, right? Hey, do you have faith? No, I have the faith. What does that mean? This little phrase, the faith, refers to those essential things, the body of teaching that we are committed to as Christians. He says we are to strive together, contend together. We're to, to compete in this game like we're on the same team for this faith, this body of teaching, this message of the gospel. The reason that's significant and that little phrase, the faith, appears throughout the New Testament, especially in the, the pastoral epistles, um, like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Um, what's interesting about that little phrase, though, is it means even in the first century, they were already recognizing that there are some teaching that's inbounds and there's some teaching that's out of bounds for Christians. There is right and wrong doctrine. There is good teaching and false teaching. There is orthodoxy and heresy. There is truth and error. 
And for us to contend together for the gospel means we've got to believe that. And that is one of the things that we will face opposition with in our culture, just like they did in theirs. In our culture, it's, it's understood that belief is kind of regressive. To say that one person has truth and another person doesn't, that who am I to say that? And so what really needs to happen in our world is that we drop doctrine and beliefs and we just love one another. What we're supposed to do is, is not hold on to these doctrines because doctrines just divide people. Look at all of the division that's been caused from religion and doctrine. And so really what we need to do is, is love. And of course, as Tim Keller points out, that is a doctrine itself. So there's no escaping the fact that everyone, to some degree, lives their life by some kind of doctrine, the faith. Christians are responsible for making sure that the faith that we defend and uphold is the faith that God intended. Thankfully, he has given us his word and his spirit So our mission, standing firm, means that we contend together for the faith of the gospel. We live in a time where it's cool to deconstruct faith, where it seems arrogant to be confident in anything. And it is true that we want to be a church where asking questions and wrestling with doubts is free and encouraged. But the goal is to wrestle doubts. The goal is to have reasons for faith, not endless questions. There is a spiritual enemy who wants to deceive us into thinking that questions are cool and answers are arrogant, and his lies can shipwreck our faith. But the truth is, faith should be pursued and fought for because it is through faith that we're saved and experience real life in Jesus. So standing firm means contending together for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm also means not being intimidated by outside opponents. Look at what he says in verse 28. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation and this is from God. This is a weird little verse here. What we know for sure is that eventually following Jesus will cause you to suffer in some way. Sometimes you'll miss out on things. Sometimes you'll be mocked. Sometimes you'll be attacked. Sometimes you'll be killed. Enduring that kind of suffering can be terrifying and that's why Paul needs to say, don't be frightened. It's normal to be frightened. But he says, there's a few reasons 
that you cannot be frightened. First, he says, this is going to result in your victory, not your defeat. He says, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. The question you have to answer is, this is a confusing verse. I'll try to be brief. The question you have to answer here is, what does this refer to? You know how pronouns need antecedents? Remember that from somewhere back in your day? So this is a sign of destruction for them. What does the this refer to? I think it refers to the faith in verse 27. And that leads me to interpret this verse like this, that as the world looks at these Christians who are trying to live for heaven, as the world looks at Christians and sees them holding on to this faith, they think, man, that's causing them so many problems. It would be so much easier if they would just get rid of that. They look at it and they see it as destruction. But you look at it. This faith, it's a sign of destruction for them. That is when they see it, they think, man, what are you, you're wasting your life. But when you see it, when you see the faith, the things that you proclaim, the message of the gospel, when you see those things, you know that it will turn out for your salvation, for your deliverance. That even though it's looking like you're in defeat, it's actually going to result in victory. That's, I think, what he's saying. So he says, that's why you should not be frightened because, hey, what does the faith actually say is gonna happen to people who are persecuted? It's gonna result in victory. What happened to Jesus? It resulted in victory. So you can be, you can have courage because of what the faith says. He also says that you can have courage because Jesus has gifted you with this suffering. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you. And the word granted means to be given a gift, to do something generous for you. And here's the generous thing that Jesus had done for the Philippians. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. The gracious thing that Jesus has given the Philippians is the opposition and persecution that they're experiencing. Now that is a weird thing to wrap your mind around. But it can give you courage because it means that this persecution that you're enduring, Philippi, it has passed through the hands of Jesus before it's come to you. So you can trust him. And not only does he give you as a grace this situation, but he also gives you the grace to endure. 
He doesn't always take us out, remove us from the opposition, but instead gives us grace to stand in the opposition. And then he says, verse 30, there are also people like me who have gone ahead of you in this struggle. It says, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. He says, listen, Philippians, you're not the only ones who have gone through something like this. You've heard about me and my struggle. He talks about that in chapter two. And now you're about to hear that I've got the same struggle. I'm still in chains. I'm still being persecuted for my faith, the faith. So you're not alone. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. I don't know what your life is like. I mean, being a Christian for me is probably easier than it is for you. When I come to work, I come with other people who are like, could we just study the Bible together and pray? You know, that's not what we do all day at the church, but, but it's probably easier for me to be a Christian than it is for you. Maybe the hope that you need to hear is that you are not alone as you face the opposition, as you try to figure out what it means to live like a Christian in this crazy world. You are not alone. If you're afraid, you're not alone. You're not the first person who's tried to follow God's will for their life and faced opposition and didn't know what to do. In the Old Testament, it's full of men and women whose faith was terrifying. But courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the willingness to put on that fear and move forward, to stand firm, to still engage. There's a lot of people in the faith who have gone before you in that, but none is greater than Jesus. Jesus, when he looked at the cup that he would have to drink, he didn't pass it. He drank it. And he did it so that you could be a citizen of heaven. So as a citizen of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for sending your son. Would we as Christians and would we as a church fix our eyes on him? the founder and perfecter of our faith. God, would we stand firm? Would we remain when we want to run? God, would we be united together with one spirit, one purpose? God, would we 
Would we compete together for the same purpose? God, would you give us courage? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?